Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. I hope everyone is ready for the holiday season and you have some time off over the next couple weeks to relax and recharge. But today we have another fun fellows-driven podcast. Senior fellows Joe Rila France and Kevin Patterson discuss what a just energy transition would look like in tribal communities. LaFrance from the Crow Nation and Patterson from the Navajo Nation talk about energy production and use in their own communities and the challenges and opportunities to make it more sustainable. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Balaja Eji and Machalushuk, Mazamalachia, Bi Urishik, Delancon, Bi Hukak, Chaba, Gadik. Hi, my name is Jory LaFrance. My Apsalaga name is Eugene Machalish, and it means fortunate with horses, and it was given to me by the late Sioux Takes Horse. I come from the Apsalaga Nation in southeastern Montana. I'm currently a doctorate student in the Department of Environmental Sciences at the University of Arizona studying soil and water science. Specifically, my doctorate research is looking at surface water quality and watershed management in the Little Bighorn River, which is a river that I've grown up along my entire life. It's located on my reservation, and I feel very fortunate to be able to do work on a river that my people have always relied on, and that will be a river and a resource for our future generations. And I'm so happy to be here today with my fellow co-host, my fellow Agents of Change and Environmental Justice cohort member, and also my fellow Dartmouth alum. We're happy to be here to be speaking a little bit about energy transitions in Native nations. Yat Ash A. Kevin Patterson, Yunashia, Ashi Hinishle, Taba Hinbashishin, Bitani Dashache, Klaashte Dashanelli. Hi, everyone. My name is Kevin. Thank you so much for you know, uh, thank you to the AOC team for allowing us to have this conversation today about Native Nations and energy justice. Um, Jory and I met um, uh, really, you know, what what is it now, like 10 years ago, I think, or almost or eight yeah. years ago? Yeah, I mean, like six, yeah, that's still, <laughs> I would call it. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think it, it's so... Um, incredible to be sharing this space with you by just, you know, all of your passions and commitments with your work um, and what we do uh, in our respective communities when we, and studying water um, that really, I think, brings us to this current conversation. And so, I mean, we've had many countless conversations about Native nations in the U.S., uh, but one of which we want to highlight today is one that's been motivated by the 2019 purchase of the Spring Creek Mine, on which, which is on the traditional homelands of the Upsaluga Nation uh, by the Navajo Transitional Energy Company, uh, which is uh, owned by my, my tribe, the Navajo Nation. Um, so because of this unique connection between both of us as respective tribal citizens of these nations, um, uh, again, I'm Dene, and uh, Jory is Absolige. Uh, so we really hope to provide um, some personal narrative into 
this connection, but really speaking to larger themes about what tribal sovereignty means. Sometimes it's much simpler to begin this type of conversation with something very simple, like to really understand myself as this second citizen came when I was in high school. Uh, We had to take Navajo government courses as a requirement um, of being students, uh, Navajo students within my school district. And, you know, I've heard all these things up to this point before about like, um, yes, I'm Navajo. And um, I think I only ever really understood that in a cultural sense, you know, like I knew I had this, you know, ID and this certificate of Indian blood that was like telling me that I was Navajo. Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't really understand myself beyond a cultural sense until, you know, stepping into this course and really seeing like, oh, wow, this is like a whole, you know, people get like tribal IDs, you know, and I, I hadn't mm-hmm. even known that it existed until then. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know if that's a similar experience you have, Jory, there. Oh, yeah, it is. I have a tribal ID and I didn't really understand what a tribal ID was either until I got older, but I knew it was there. Yeah. I, knew I had to have one. <laughs> And and I think in our time in undergrad was, you know, really, I think when I really started understanding the nuance into Mm -hmm. everything that was um, Indian country today, I think that even was a name of a course Mm -hmm. taught by Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Bruce Dutu. Um, Mm -hmm. But that is is to say that, yes, we are in in some sense and a technical sense that we are like dual citizens between our own tribal nations and then also the U S government. And so mm-hmm. that type of sense of I, uh, that, that allowance through the federal government is, um, a privilege that is only, uh, afforded to tribes that are federally recognized tribes. Um, and then to some state recognized tribes. Today, there are 574 federally recognized tribes. There are 63 state-recognized tribes in 11 states. And then there are six tribes currently in the petition process um, for federal recognition. So federal recognition itself is such a huge um, boost to uh, any tribe that is not currently federally recognized because they actually get um, services um, in kind of... uh, um, Benefits? Benefits, yeah, from the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, in in a a greater sense, the uh, federal government. With that, and um, as as just like a very simplified way of seeing that, that my sense of self and, you know, who I thought of myself as this, you know, this dual citizen, I have myself as a Navajo Nation citizen, I'm a U.S. citizen, Uh, I go go on from that and like, you know... um, it, it, it really does, I think, and maybe you agree here, Jory, um, impacts the way I see my own work, but I see the way or even what is we're even allowed to imagine. Mm-hmm. Like it sort of is, it, and I said this earlier, it is this um, allowance by the federal government for us to even have an imagination about what we want to see ourselves because it affords us tribal sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So that really brings us to like a fundamental 
question and a truth about who we are as tribal nations today. You know, are we looking to keep doing the same thing, doing like what we were essentially modeled and programmed to be? And I mean that by how my tribe, and maybe this is the same for you too with um, uh, your nation, Jory, but our Navajo Nation Council, when it was founded, we have like three branches of government. We have a president, we have a vice president, and we have in a similar sense, like a house of, like our tribal council is like combined of like the house of representatives and senators. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a judicial branch. So it's in our constitution too. It's so it's modeled by the U S uh, and mirrored in the same way. And so we are in, in some ways like these little mini U S um, you know, nations. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a so, good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, a, a fundamental question of, you know, are we continuing to be what the U S is? Like, are we look, is the goal for us to be, you know, what this is, or can we reimagine what this looks like and reimagine more specifically in the focus of this podcast into what our stake is within the energy sector mm-hmm. and what that means the what everything you just mentioned remind me of a quote reminds me of a quote said by the most awesome Dallas Goldtooth also watch reservation dogs on Hulu <laughs> um, Dallas Goldtooth is on there and um, I had an opportunity to be a part of a workshop with him and one of the quotes that he said to me that stuck has stuck with me to this day is he said, we can't be afraid to manage a future in which we exist. And I think that really speaks to the conversation that we want to have today. And so shifting into reimagining what our futures look like in terms of tribal sovereignty, energy sovereignty. Um, this conversation is just to give a little bit of perspective into the reality that we face as individual tribal members of our communities, um, but also trying to get people to think about and challenge what sovereignty looks like for us as tribal nations. So, Individuals' concerns about, you know, the contamination uh, from the pollution that's emitted from, you know, a cold fire power plant can be a health impact concern of a community and maybe even of the local jurisdiction. But, you know, if it's something that is promoting the, I don't, I want to say like quote unquote here, the economic prosperity um, of just maybe the area, but of the tribe in general, then oh, yeah. I think there are kind of mm-hmm. different voices, mm-hmm. um, not always in unison yeah. about something. Uh, do you have a similar experience there? 100%. 100%. There's definitely different views of cold development within our county. You have those who are employed tribal members of this coal mine, but also the history of this mine. This The mine was the first 
you know, coal shipment that was sent to a generating station happened in 1974. And you have this generation of Absaluga people who are very proud of this coal mine in terms of providing you know, like you mentioned, economic prosperity for us. It provided a, a sense of security at the time for us and not only for individual families, for those who relied as on the coal mine for their employment to provide for their families, but it also provided a sense of security for us as uh, an economic resource to function as a government but then you have those who were totally opposed to the mine, who did not want to get into this extractive industry in any way. We also had impacts to our cultural important sites. We There was actually a buffalo kill site, and that was destroyed based on, you know, the poor decisions of people who were in office at the time who decided to expand this coal mine and completely destroyed this Buffalo Kill site. We had tribal members who were going head to head on these issues. So yeah, it's it's the same here. We have different, you know, interests in in the mine, not only from the tribal aspect and families and um you know, our districts, we, similar to you in chapters, we have districts, we function on a three-branch system the same way that the federal government does. Uh, We have legislatures from each of our six districts who we vote in to represent us. And then you have stakeholders like the county, Bighorn County, and then you have the state of Montana, who each of these different stakeholders, they obtain royalties from this coal mine, And at the time when these negotiations were made, it was us. It was Absaluga people who got the short end of the stick. And, you know, that that coal mine is still being run today. And a lot of our tribal members, my my own family members, rely on this coal mine for much of their economic resource and to live, you know, to just survive, to to live in this society that we live in today. So it's, it's definitely... Uh, a complicated topic to talk about, um, but I think it's really important that we think about the impacts that these industries have in our communities and how we ended up being involved in these industries, but also this just transition and thinking about the future of coal and then reimagining our history, or sorry, reimagining our future, learning from that history, learning how to make better for- informed decisions learning why our tribal leaders at that time made the decisions that they made. So when we move forward as leaders of today, as citizens of our tribal communities of today, as, you know, really taking hold on the responsibility of having a role in your community and knowing that your role has a stake in the future of your community and reimagining what that looks like for sovereignty, what our sovereignty looks like in the future is something that we need to be thinking about as a nation, something we need to be thinking about on the ground level in terms of individual sovereignty, community sovereignty, tribal sovereignty, and how we can strengthen our tribal sovereignty to work toward a future that we imagine, a future that we believe we deserve because we do deserve this. 
but we've been handed cards you know, throughout history that has held us back from this, but also limitations and restrictions that prevent us from making decisions that we want to make. So it's, I think the conversation we're having today is really just trying to touch on the the experiences we face as people from these communities, but also as scholars, as researchers who want better for our communities, who know we deserve a better future and are actively working towards that future. Moving the conversation now to um, more of this idea around Mm -hmm. um, what a just transition looks like for our communities. Um, We recognize that the what you were saying, the impacts of, you know, the fossil fuel industry so far are not just limited to, um, uh, you know, the what we know of mm-hmm. what gets emitted into the air, to soil and water, but also the network that it creates in the area. The people mm-hmm. that are not just not just even within an economic sense, but even health sense. Like a lot of families that rely on the health insurance through that, through care uh, providers that um, also are funded through those industries as well um, by like, you know, um, Mm -hmm. in an area that is pretty remote, there are going to be needed uh, setups of, you know, healthcare providers of even other services um, such as water. Um, so when you remove Mm -hmm. that, it does really remove that whole network in that area, especially one that's been operating, like for instance, on the Navajo Nation, Mm -hmm. the NGS, which has been there since 1969, um, or at least that's when the lease was signed. Um, so it is quite, um, uh, it's quite a rooted system, that now when we move into a conversation about just transition and like what that looks like for tribes, it, um, at least from our understanding and like from, you know, those of, uh, uh, those that we know mm-hmm. that work within this, uh, much more intimately and ha- have, uh, and, and in some ways better expertise, but also joy, you are the expert here. Um, so with their, your recent summit, if you wanted to talk about that, um, at Dartmouth where, uh, there is a, after the uprooting of these, um, networks, these systems that, uh, have been so in, in many ways beneficial to the community in terms of just the health systems that they've established, um, all of this. And, and I'm not even saying yeah. that as like any credit mm-hmm. to like those energy companies as well, because when you think about it, is it an mm-hmm. investment in the land or is it an investment in the community that is in that area? Like if they're, if, if that's being uprooted out, then I feel mm-hmm in my understanding that there was no investment in the community. And I feel like that, that, that is a pretty popular narrative that a lot of these industries will, you know, uh, kind of proclaim and like advertise out, but clearly we see Mm -hmm. that, you know, Mm -hmm. when they're gone, 
everything that they brought also leaves with them. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, well, now we're back to sort of in some sense square one right. about, you know, a community that has been reliant on this. How can we fill that? And I think that obviously comes in these ebbs and flows where mm-hmm. there's this investment into something like Spring Creek Mine, where it's trying to fill in these gaps quickly to kind of get mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. a better, like to, to get its footing again so that it, it's a, like a, um, a, a tri- or like a tribal nation is able then to have a more clearer conversation about mm-hmm. renewable energy because now it's in a position where it's not drowning. Like it's above water. It can like now engage with this. But I think often times, especially with more, you know, smaller tribes, less resourceful, uh, less resource, or, or I would say like resource deprived tribes um, are in a state of this kind of drowning phase where they can't even have this conversation about just transition. Tribal communities in a lot of ways, especially on tribal lands, um, there's a lot of restrictions and limitations that really hold us back in a lot of ways. And I say that because uh, when you think about just transition for a tribal community and you think about a just transition for, let's say, Hardin, Montana, which is a border town on my reservation, they have a solar a solar field right outside of town. And for them to get that solar field was a much easier process for them than for us to build a solar field. We have so many barriers, so many different levels of things that we have to work through. So it's really important to think about, you know, some of the restrictions and limitations, um, the system set in place for us to not be able to reach or be able to invest in some of the efforts that we would we would like to, especially when it comes to just transition. And you mentioned earlier that I, I so I recently attended the Irving Institute for Energy and Society New Energy Summit at Dartmouth College, uh, which was held um, in July 2023, just last week for us. And it was, I'm not in energy at all, but I've just inherently fell into the energy sector given the environmental work that I do. I study surface water quality in the Little Bighorn River, which is a river on my reservation. But I'm also a part of the Absaloga Energy Justice Project, which is a, a group of eight young Absaloga leaders who are doing our own individual work, you know, contributing to giving back to our community in any way. You know, we have people who are in construction, people who are journalists, uh, myself who is in environmental science and those who are in civic engagement. So they brought us together to really learn about the history of Crow Coal, Absaluga Coal, Um, learn about the negotiations learn about why we made these decisions. I mentioned this earlier before, um, that it's important to know the this history so we can make better informed decisions. So now we're at this point of ex- executing a, a, an oral history project to learn from those individuals who made those decisions. 
I want to know why they made these decisions. What motivated them? What what was their reasoning and how, what is their thoughts now? What, you know, we're thinking about a just transition. Why didn't we invest in renewable energy? We have the Yellowtail Dam, which is on my reservation. We have the U.S. versus Montana court case, which was very integral in not only our water rights, but also in jurisdiction, regulations. And there's so much history that happened I was born in 1995, yet these cases that were made in the 60s impact my every single, like every single day of my life. And so it's important to know this history and the Absaloga Energy Justice Project is really helping us find out that history, become more knowledgeable and interact with that, that intergenerational conversation so we can pass that knowledge down, so we can make decisions moving forward with more knowledge and more understanding of the grid of renewable energy of clean technology even (laughs) a new word I learned at the energy summit was um, energy literacy I would have never thought of that energy education going into our schools and teaching about clean energy and I think What's really important in all of this that I really found out and I tend to separate myself or silo myself based on disciplines, energy really impacts all of us. Electricity, we use electricity for every single thing. And you go onto reservations, not all of our homes have electricity. Uh, and yet, you know, for my community specifically, we have the Yellowtail Dam. It's one of the four main peak generating stations of electricity in the entire United States. No one from my community receives electricity from this dam, from the Yellowtail Dam. And that's really heartbreaking, but it also speaks to some of that history and those decisions that weren't made. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I was just about to say that it's so, it's so important to have what your collective organization is doing because the conversation itself of just transition uh, we know has not, is not being had, you know, between our family members, between, you know, the uh, tribal citizens. I I feel that for the most part, a lot of our tribal citizens in our nation, respective nations don't know like what, is happening at the broader scale of just transition, but even at that, like what the tribe is doing, like the Navajo generating stations closure was pretty abrupt. Like, I think a lot of the community members were just, um, uh, taken aback and shocked by just the immediate closure of NGS. Um, I, um, can't speak on like what the consultation was through the, tribal uh tribal government was with the local community and chapter houses um but uh if that was not had then i think it is an important um important thing to note there about how again these three levels of interplay where the tribe is operating as this nation to nation of course but its people are not always um kept within uh decisions made at that higher level um 
So what you're saying there is incredibly important for sure. Definitely. Um, and it's, I think another thing that you touched on about, well, I think there, that it's such a large concern about any energy that's produced on tribal lands that it goes back into the communities where that energy is being, uh, you know, extracted from, you know, developed and, and sent off like NGS, I think was powering, um, like Arizona, Nevada, California. Um, and, and so, um, it's, it's so, uh, important, you know, when we see like, are we even in the investment in the energy sector, is it like an investment into powering, at large scale communities that aren't our own. And that's why it's like this transition to renewable energy is almost like not so much as a priority because if we were, I I mean, I wonder if like we could power our own communities, just our communities with renewable energy. And like, you know, it's it's sort of like a, a question of, again, back to the same thing. What are we able to reimagine through tribal sovereignty, um, when it comes to um, uh, what our position is within the energy sector, so yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a very important thing to bring up: is the Navajo Generating Station providing power for multiple states in the Western region. And for us, our coal was sent to the Midwest. It was providing coal for Excel Energy, Western Fields Association, Rocky Mountain Power, all of these coal company, or sorry, electricity companies that don't provide electricity for my community at all. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where I really have conflict with is we have a coal mine we're extracting coal this coal is being sent elsewhere to power plants generating electricity for other communities yellowtail dam same exact thing and you have tribal members who have to pay to external sources to get electricity you have homes that don't have electricity don't have running water So here we are feeling the impacts, the economic impacts, the cultural impacts, the environmental impacts of this industry, and we're not receiving the electrical benefits from that. It's such an interesting place to be. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I I don't mean for any of our listeners here today to to think that we are holding all the answers or saying everything that needs to be said right now (laughs) as two water scientists here, (laughs) or at least people who study water, that something as precious as that, that's used in such large quantities Mm -hmm. for all these industries has been, I think really still at the core of what concerns us Mm -hmm. and what our research is. Well, I think we both don't get into the whole, you know, this is what it says in law or like, this is the history, like, you know, Mm -hmm. historically placing all these different treaties and then how this plays out. I think our lived reality in, you know, studying water on, in our communities is that the water in its current state 
is by result of these, you know, human centered activities of mining um, that have really impacted the quality of our water and the quality of our environment over time. Like no question, like the uh, levels of heavy metals and of other inorganics has really um, brought into question like um, all that we see now when it comes to just transition and this pressure for that. But also as indigenous scientists and all of this, we do hold, as we've been saying throughout this episode, that there is still hesitation and there's still nuance to consider when it comes to seeing that while, yes, all of this is ha- has happened, we're seeing this contamination, it is also in the same step that we have to consider the impact on people's livelihood that in the same way that, you know, all this has been happening, the same way that uh, their lives have been so um, interconnected with these industries over time and the networks that have been established um, that I think are really unseen in some ways until its absence is really seen. I think that's a very important point to to really elaborate on is the reimagining what our future looks like and believing in that future and having a nation mentality. And I speak to this in sen- in terms of talking to my fellow tribal people, those who are part of a nation who has sovereignty, who practices sovereignty, that we need to have a nation mentality. We need to think on this level. And I think the whole conversation we have today is so multi-layered, especially in respects to sovereignty, individual sovereignty, family sovereignty, community, tribal, state, county, federal. There is so multi-layered. But when you really think about the impacts of coal or energy development in any way, whether it's renewable or fossil fuel, you have to think about the impacts of those who are on the ground. I think as academics, we're both academics here who are in the ivory tower doing the work, doing our scholarship that we always remember not to remove ourselves from from those who are impacted on the ground. And I feel like both of our research were very community-based that all we think about are those who are on the ground, their, their everyday lives. But I hope that if there's one thing that people take away from this conversation is not to forget about those who are experiencing these impacts every single day. But they are at the the hands of people who are decision makers, especially when it comes to energy transition. And I just hope that people don't forget about those who experience the ground impacts, who are on the front lines, who are at, who are in these homes, who are adjacent to these plants, who are reliant on these coal plants that are Uh, as their main economic resource. I'm not trying to look down upon this or look down upon these families who 
who are um who are employed at these places i i completely understand i'm a part of a tribe who's invested in this and i have family members who are invested in this who live paycheck to paycheck and that's just the realities and i just hope i just hope people don't forget about us and the complexities and the intricacies that we have to go through you know as tribal citizens have the autonomy to make these decisions and input in in be informed that then steers the direction of the greater you know government itself of our tribal nations uh towards what we are you know I, I, whatever the um that decision leads to um i think that's a perfect like if anything, if there, if nothing, uh, any other resolution does it, or a solution comes out of this conversation, it's just in that uh, the information needed for community members is so dire right now, and that um, what's happening at these higher levels within our tribes often goes unchecked, or is often at times um, in contention with local communities, local constituencies of um, those conversations happening. So that is all to say that the work being done within local organizing is in some regard, one first step into this much larger um, change and reimagination that can occur at higher levels within tribal government and then eventually, you know, leading into being a lead voice within government to government relations. Exactly. I 100% agree with that. And I think our individual research is at a community level. It's at an individual level. We, our research is really looking at how it impacts our tribal members, our community members, and energy justice, energy transition, the energy conversation is no different. And including individuals who are impacted every single day by the decisions that are made at higher levels in, um, you know, like the stakeholder hierarchy, if you will, or even just, you know, um, at different agencies that, it's those on the ground. It's our community members who are feeling the impacts. And when we think about coal development or energy justice or anything related to the environment in any way, it's our community members, tribal community members who are impacted the most. And we can't forget about them in this conversation. We can't yeah. forget about us, our family members. We have both have family members who are impacted every single day by these things and my biggest thing is we are doing the work we're, we're doing our best to the capacity and the ability that we have so we are out here doing the work I don't want to make it seem like we're not doing the work because we are and there are systematic barriers and limitations set in place but we're still here so That's all for this week, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangenej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify or iTunes, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. 
This podcast was written and recorded by Joe LaFrance and Kevin Patterson, produced and edited by me, with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Want to know a great way to stay up to date with us? Sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Have a great week, folks.